Welcome to this week's Think Jewish. And the title for tonight is To Face Your Fear. Now, what we always try to do is when we talk about this class is to actually connect it to the Torah portion. And uh, usually it's based on the Rebbe Blessed Memory's teaching on something in this Torah portion. So the question here becomes, what does this have to do with this week's Torah portion? If you look at the opening statement to this week, what does it say? The name of the Parsha is what? Parshat Bo. What does Bo mean? Come. And what is the word come? Because the first statement in this week's Torah portion is that God tells Moses, Bo el paro, come to Pharaoh. And this in itself creates a lot of questions. What do you mean come to Pharaoh? Go to Pharaoh. That itself is a question we'll have to deal with in a moment. However, if you look, Rashi has a question. Because if you read the first two verses, there is no message that God's telling him to say. We already had seven other plagues. Those who like numerology, there's a teaching that the name of the parish is Bo, because Bo equals three. Bet is two, Aleph is one, because they are the last three plagues in this week's Torah portion. However, every time God told Moses, meet him in the morning at the Nile and give him a message. This week, if you read the first two verses, there is no message. God simply says, come to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in order that I may place in him all my signs, in order that it should be seen the power and greatness of God. So what was the come to Pharaoh? Rashi immediately picks up on that question, that there's no directive other than come to Pharaoh. And therefore Rashi says that the child, the five-year-old learning Chumash, should know that it is Lahazir to give him a warning. For those of you who know how the system worked, our sages tell us that every plague was a period of a month. Three weeks warning, one week a plague. The only exception to that is that clearly in this week's Torah portion it says that the plague of darkness was three days and three days, which means six days and not a, a week. And also the last plague seems to have happened that night. But all the other plagues worked in the process of a month. Moses kept on warning Pharaoh for three weeks. The fourth week it happened. Okay? So over here, God tells Moses, and Rashi says, simple pshat, simple understanding is even though God doesn't tell him to warn anything, however, if God told him to come to Pharaoh, it was to warn for the upcoming plague number seven, number eight, I'm sorry, plague number eight. And then after that, if you read the verse, jump to verse number three, and it says, that Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and they warned him. So it's very simple and easy for Rashi to give that interpretation. And that's a simple interpretation. However, again, we're going to focus now on the interpretation that I heard from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe has a different interpretation. And that answers both questions. Ba el paro, come to Pharaoh and what God was telling Moses, face your fear. Moses was afraid of Pharaoh. Moses was afraid of Pharaoh isn't that simple. In the works of Kabbalah and teaching, you'll always find 
that the evil people that the leaders of the Jewish people had to deal with throughout the five books of Moses and the books of prophecy and so forth and so on were not simple people. You'll always have very deep teachings. They have a very deep Kabbalistic teaching on Achashverosh, Achavrit Vereshitshelo, that he is refers to the greatest levels of God. The end and the beginning is all to him. And so too Paro. Paro, if you look in the Kabbalah term for Paro, the Mine Ispariun, Kol Mine Nehurun. From him came forth all different types of light. So Pharaoh is no small situation here. We're saying that Moses has to face his fear, and the fear of Moses is not the evil of this world. The evil of this world doesn't scare Moses. What does scare Moses is that the source of evil always has to be the highest form of divinity. Now, parenthetically speaking, this is going to be a Kabbalistic moment, and then we'll get back to the psychology of the Torah portion telling you to face your fear and what to do with it. There is a huge argument that really bases in the times of the Vilna Gaon, which was his, the Vilna Gaon was a great Kabbalist, and the Vilna Gaon disagreed with the teachings of the Hasidim that based themselves on the teaching of Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Ari HaKadosh. We call him the Arizal in Svat. And what is that? You see, whole Kabbalah, if I was to give it to you on one leg, whole Kabbalah is focused on one thing. That monotheism is not that we believe in one God rather than many gods. That's a weak monotheism from the point of view from Kabbalah. The true definition of monotheism, which in the language of Kabbalah defines itself as Achdut Hashem, the unity of God. The true definition according to Kabbalah in the faith of one God reads as follows. God is everything and everything is God. Were I to translate that in simple layman terms, terms, when God decided to create the world, he did not make a shopping list and go to Home Depot. So where did the supplies, the material of the world come from? You learn in Genesis that the answer is, and God said, the speech of God, which is part and parcel of God. God's speech is the actual material of the world. And therefore, those two words, the way they came up, quote unquote, God's windpipe through the voice box out, which obviously God has no form or figure, but those words made up of two words, made up of three letters each, Yehi or, let there be light. That is the actual material. Like wood is the material and the form is a bima, a table. That is the material that was formed into light. So therefore, in essence, God is everything and everything is God. It's not shot like an artist. An artist is very different. An artist will buy either acrylic, oil, water, paints, and what will he do with it? He will buy also whatever his choice is, whether he's going to use parchment, whether he's going to use paper. So all those things he gathers. So the artist does not create material. It creates form. And that's why the Nachmanris, Ramban, not Maimanris, 
Nachmanides in the opening of the Torah on the second word, Bereshit bara, he says that what is unique in the Hebrew language, we have so many different words which seems to mean create. Yotzer, kone. But it's not. He says in real definition, the only Hebrew word for creating ex nihilo, something from nothing, is bara. After that, he says, and Rashi has the same opinion, that our God only created on the first day. On every other day, he only formed and fermented. So creating something from nothing, that process is explained in Kabbalah through the famous Tzimtum contraction. And thus, when you learn that way, the end, the end equation will be God is everything and everything is God. The reason why the Vilna Gun had a problem with this is because if you say God is everything and everything is God, does evil exist in this world? The answer is yes. So when you look at an evil, an evil, an object of evil, what do you have to say? Reread the phrase. Forgive me for what I'm about to say, but that's just the way it is. God is evil and evil is God. Because if God is everything and everything is God, and I'm looking at an object that is evil, it is halachically defined as evil. Not neutral that human can turn it into evil or turn it into good. Rather, it is defined as halachically evil, period. Then you've got to read the sentence concerning that object, that God is everything and everything is God. You've got to read God is evil and evil is God. And obviously the Vilna Gaon had a huge problem with that statement. Now, being the extremist that I am, you know, when I tell you the words evil, everyone's sitting in the chair very comfortable because you and I really don't get that bent out of shape from the existence of evil. So allow me please to make you very uncomfortable. Because what I'm going to say now is very horrible. But I want you to understand the Vilna Gaon's true problem with how the Arizal and Hasidim learned Simtum. Hitler Yamach Shemoy. Where did he come from? Came from God. Now, I'm not going to get into the freedom of choice or not. But we can clearly say about Hitler that he was an absolute manifestation of evil. Do any of you feel comfortable now reading that sentence in Kabbalah? God is everything and everything is God. And now you have to replace the word everything with the word Does anyone not have the Vilna Gans problem? How do you say such words? And yet the Arizal stands by his statement and the Alter Rebbe throughout Chabad Hasidis by all his successors, the Rebbes, have explained that concept. The Vilna Gaon tries to say something called Simpsum Shalok Kipshuto. I'm sorry, that it means that God, it's Simpsum Kipshuto, which means that God completely removed himself from the world, so you don't have to read that sentence that I just presented to you. The reason I won't accept that. God never completely removed himself from this world because that means there was a change in God through creation and that can't happen. So I'm not going to answer tonight this whole concept of the argument between the Vilna Gaon 
and the Rizal. Because that's not tonight's topic. The only reason I brought this to the table is because I want you to appreciate Moses' fear of Pharaoh. According to the Arizal, Pharaoh, this man, King Pharaoh, God is Pharaoh and Pharaoh is God. How can that happen? He was a very evil man. That's why I told you that in the world of Kabbalah, the word Paro, the Zohar says, comes from the word Isparion Minei Kol Minei Nehurun. From Pharaoh, he is the source from which all light comes. That means that he is the encompassing light. In the encompassing light, on that level, especially talk about the external level of the encompassing light, things can go wrong. Because when you deal about the circular light, not the linear light, good and evil are two equal expressions of infinity. And therefore realize that when Moses faced Pharaoh, he was not facing King Tut, who we now found his mummy. That's not what Moses was facing. Moses was facing what the Zohar calls mine isparion ko mine So Moses was not afraid, per se, of the physical manifestation of Pharaoh. Moses was afraid of how he perceived the world, the Pharaoh that exists within there. Because the Pharaoh that exists within Moses' world was not just a physical king. And that is why when you see a king, the Jewish law, when you see a king, is that you have to make a blessing. And what are you blessing him with? You're blessing because he is a manifestation of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty can only belong to God. When you see a human king, that is a manifestation of one of the greatest gifts of God. So I'm not making a blessing over this human being as a simple human being from a mother and father born to die. But I am making a blessing on what he is transmitting. When Moses looked at Pharaoh, he wasn't looking at the Pharaoh that was born and would die. He was looking at the source. And when Moses looks at the source of the infinite divine light, which has no preference between good and evil and can go either way, Moses had fear. I just want to throw in something just so you can connect because I'm looking at your eyes to see if you're still with me here. By the way, that's the same secret with Haman and Mordechai. Why did Haman choose to make the gallow 50 amot? Not 49 and not 51. Because for those of you who study Hasidus and Kabbalah, you'll know that the 49 gateways is within human reach. The 50th gateway is not linear and permeating. It's actually circular and encompassing. So if we can reach that level of divinity, which is 50, thought Haman, from that level, the words, the exact words of the prophet, by the way, is, Esau is a brother to Yaakov. At that level, they're both identical twins. At that level, there is no preference to Mordechai over Haman. And that's why, according to Kabbalah, if you keep on following the story, it's always because the evil men were not simple evil men. They knew that there's a level of, I, I, I tried to say this word, but I'm going to say it now anyway, and please trust me in Q&A. You can ask about it. 
but there is an infinite level of divinity which is actually I don't want to use the word detached but from that level nothing makes a difference the prophet says and if you have done good have you done for me something if you've done bad have you hurt me so when you get to these infinite levels where things can really go wrong the verse clearly says that God created light and God created darkness. And we know darkness to be the definition of evil. So there is an infinite circular level where good and evil are two equal expressions of God's potential. That's what Moses was looking at. And Moses knew, if I can't draw this infinite circle into the appropriate line, we got problems. Because God can then choose evil over goodness. Now, these are hard words to say, and these are words you're not going to find in your average um, Kabbalah 101 classes. But I just want to share with you that Moses had a real fear. And now appreciate what the ever blessed memory says about this verse. Bo el paro. For what reason? To face your fear. If Moses is going somewhere to face his fear, where does he really have to go? There's only one place you can go to face your fear. Within yourself. Now you understand why it says come to Pharaoh rather than go to Pharaoh? So the entire picture of this opening verse has nothing what to do with Pharaoh, the Egyptians, nothing at all. Moses is not going to Egypt, he's coming to Moses. Where in Moses is he going to? To the place of fear. Fear of what? Fear of Pharaoh. Why would Moses be afraid of Pharaoh? Because Moses sees the Pharaoh, the source from where he comes. Which will also just help define most of the times when you talk about that famous statement, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Normally what we try to say is that fear usually isn't something real. It's in virtual reality. I create this to be greater than me, and then obviously from that comes, I create that I am afraid of this. So what we tell you is, face your fear, and you'll usually see that it's all hocus pocus. It's virtual reality. My mother doesn't listen to SoundCloud, so I can get away telling you this, that normally when I think of this in the teachings, I think of my mother watching soap operas. Because I would always, as a child, find it hysterical that she was crying because this one cheated on that one. And as the world turns in a hospital, I can give you all the masechtas of soap operas. And I just didn't understand. Yeah, I think in Spanish called novelas, right? Novelas. So what happens is the worst thing you can ever do to my mother when she is enjoying the emotion of pain is to pull out the plug because she's living in that virtual reality. And you don't want to stop because the emotions depends upon that virtual reality. So when you said there's nothing to fear but fear itself, what we're really telling you is get off the chair and pull out the plug. That's all. Face it. Don't let this virtual reality keep on building and building. Face it and realize it's, a fr it's, it's just a fraud. The reason I went through the whole introduction to this class is because I want to share with you that not every time is fear of a virtual reality. Sometimes fear is appropriate. 
And just to drive this point home one more step, you'll also see in Parsha's boy that Moses is told by Pharaoh a reality. And what is that? I see that evil awaits you. And what does Rashi say? That Rashi, that Pharaoh actually saw that there was going to be blood. And he was referring to the time of the golden calf. And that's why in the golden calf, what is Moses' argument to God? Why should they say that with evil have you taken, with evil intentions, have you taken the Jews out of Egypt? And he was referring to telling God, if you let this play out, then Pharaoh will say he was right. And therefore, God exchanged the punishment. And what God did was he allowed that blood to manifest itself in the blood of the circumcision that the Jews did in the time of Joshua. And the punishment wasn't immediate annihilation, but rather, as we're told, that whenever there's any retribution upon the Jewish people, there's always a little bit of the sin of the golden calf there. Why am I telling you this story? Because obviously Pharaoh saw something real and he was letting Moses know. So once again, tonight's class is not about how to face virtual fear. It's going to get deeper than that. There are fears of things which deserve to be feared. And how do you face your fear? Pharaoh from Moses' world was real. He was of the highest order of divinity from which circular light comes forth. And therefore, there could have very easily have been, just like between Haman and Mordechai in the 50 gallo, so too could there have been clearly that God would have chosen Pharaoh and not Moses. And Moses had to face that. Moses had to face the reality that there was going to be somewhere a manifestation of retribution. Pharaoh saw what he saw, and he wasn't playing games with Moses. How do we deal with that? How do we face our fear? Two things. I'm not going to make this class sound bigger than it is. I'm going to break it down to just two things. Number one is the teaching of Baal Bashemtov discusses that identifying is the greatest step in facing your fear. You know, guys, right? I always quote these wonderful movies. How many of you join me as Harry Potter fans? You're a Harry Potter fan? Good. You have lifetime membership here. <laughs> Let me share with you. Do you remember what the biggest issue was? The biggest issue was that only Dumbledore and Harry would even dare mention the Dark Lord's name, right? Other people would not even mention his name. He is known throughout the movie as he who must not be mentioned. Do you understand what kind of power that itself gave the Dark Lord? <coughs> Imagine living your life like that. There's someone so evil, so powerful, that you can't even identify him by name. Most of us live our life that way. Most of us will live 
our entire life that certain things we don't talk about. Not only that, I will share with you as a rabbi, sometimes you're given a heads up. And I'm going to say an example without names. I had to meet with a certain individual who never lost his only daughter in a car accident. And the one thing I was given a heads up when I was going to meet him is, do not talk about his daughter. And rabbis do that out of sensitivity and respect. Because obviously someone came across this sensitive button and this person really expressed that he can't deal with it. So it just became a hand-me-down. Don't talk to him about his daughter. You realize what that does? You realize how that denies this person to ever be able to heal? Because we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to make believe it doesn't exist. We're going to make believe that this whole thing is just never happened. How is this man ever supposed to be able to even begin a journey of the five steps that Groba speaks about in acceptance of deep grief? No one wants to talk to him about it. Never existed. What daughter? I didn't know you had a daughter. Really? You had a daughter? Oh, never. But it's not easy. And not everyone has to come knocking on his door. I heard your daughter died and I just wanted to tell you we don't got to be stupid about it either. It's got to be the right time, the right person. But if we're going to accept that we never identify the intense fear, pain, whatever it is, we're never going to talk about it. And we're never going to heal. So the Baal Shem Tov says like this, Sometimes when it comes to evil, we're afraid of evil. All that we need to do as step number one is turn around, point at it, and say, I know what you are. You are evil. That's not easy. Where's my Harry Potter fan? <laughs> what was in the box? The bug art it's called? The box that when you opened it up, it turned into the image of your greatest fear? Oh, God. I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> you just lost your lifetime membership. <laughs> but the whole concept of that exercise was that this creature immediately zoomed in on your greatest fear. So for one, it, talked into, it turned into a spider because that was his greatest fear, right? And, what's, and that's what you referred to me today, right, in the text message. Yeah. What was the famous word? The name of that spell is ridiculous. Because being able to face it and name it for what it is. This, by the way, will help you in any relationship. Allow anyone into your life, and as much as they love you, for their own insecurity and safety, they're going to immediately scan your entire essence to find your buttons. Because no one wants to be in a relationship where they don't have a backup plan called, I know your weakness. And the more you try to hide it, the more power you give it, the more power you give it, the more the other person's in control. So the first step that God tells Moses is, you are afraid of him. I, I, I know that you trust me. 
I know that you're my loyal servant. I know you pulled off seven of my greatest stunts ever. But you are afraid of him. That's the bottom line. Now, you're not afraid of him like the others are afraid of him because you're afraid of his spiritual great source. But bottom line, Moses, you're afraid of him. You can't completely belong to me if you're still afraid of something else. And therefore, the opening words are, face your fear. Now, I'm going to share with you a story. This one actually isn't a movie. <laughs> That's my fear, to tell real stories. But anyway, there's a friend of mine. He told me the story because he witnessed it, and he told me the name of who it was, someone that I know. This guy, he says, my friend, was walking up Crown Street between Albany and Troy, for any of you that know Crown Heights. Now, on one side of the street is a whole bunch of buildings. On the other side of the street, there was a huge empty, today half of it is already built, but there's that huge, what used to be the hotel, that's now just empty and, and he was walking on that empty side. And he say, and I'm sorry, he's walking on the street and he sees his friend running on the empty side. And he wants to know how come his friend, his friend's first name is Label. So why is Label running? And he sees that right behind Label is a dog. And he just realized that Label is petrified of dogs. So he tells me he watched this with his own eyes. Label is the, the grandson of a very great Hasid who served both the 5th Lubavitch Rebbe and the 6th Lubavitch Rebbe. Very much, a very, what we call a maskal, a very mind over matter. And it's in the traits of his children and grandchildren. He watches as Label stops running. I mean, guys, think in pictures. Entertain me here. The dog is chasing him. He's running. He comes to a forced short stop. He jumped up and down in one spot three times, turned around, and charged the dog. This is a story that happened with someone who is two years younger than me. We're not talking about some great... That moment, that moment, I mean, what happens to a dog when it gets charged? Most dogs will just take off. The dog lives off the fact that you're running away. The minute you stop and turn and face the dog and start charging the dog, unless the dog was specifically trained for that, that dog is going to bat out of there. And what did it take from Label? Bo El Paro. Stop running to the dog, face the dog, and charge it. And at that moment, Label identified his fear, the dog, and he faced it. So what I'm sharing with you here is that one of the most important steps is to do the exact opposite that we do. We sweep things under the carpet. We put things in our closet. We'll do anything to take it away from our conscious mind. So much so that God's gift to the brain is that the brain is set up to protect you. So much so that we know for a fact that children that were molested have absolutely no recollection at all that they were ever molested because the brain knows that the human will not be able to deal with this at this age. It locks it away and it will maybe come out through hypnosis.
What unfortunately does come out is the behavior, because the subconscious has it there. And that's why it's so important to go back and face it and deal with it. But we're actually programmed. We're biologically programmed not to face our fears, because we can't deal with them. And by the way, I actually spoke to a therapist about this, so I'm not just saying it on my own. But I question the therapist. Who says denial is so terrible? Denial is not terrible, up to a point. Sometimes you tell yourself, I can't deal with this now. I just can't deal with this issue now. So for now, I'm just going to go into denial mode. And as long as you can function without dealing with the symptoms that's creeping out because of what you're denying, then fine. Push it off for a later time. This may not be the time to deal with it. I know clearly that the Rebbe Blesses Memories answer to young men about sexual thoughts. And the outcome of that was, don't deal with it now. Right now, you got to go into denial of that. Replace it with Torah thoughts. When you get married and you have a wife and you can deal with it then, it would be safe, deal with it then. So that is a Jewish form of dealing with things. Sometimes now is not the time or place in my life that I can deal with this. But we're talking about when the time does come, and you'll know when the time comes, because your subconscious is acting up, and you know that something is wrong. Be willing to face. Be willing to face your fear, identify it. Do you know what happens when you identify? Identifying is a description, a description is giving borders. That's why anytime someone it wants to help you, they're going to help you talk about it. Okay, tell me the parameters of this problem. Your house is in foreclosure, God forbid. What are the parameters of this problem? And then let's break it. And that's the left side of the brain. It's always subdividing, subdividing, subdividing. Why? Because as you all know the famous saying, how do you eat an elephant? Mouthful by mouthful. But if you don't chop up the elephant into mouthful pieces, then you can't eat it. All you have is this one big screaming hysterically because there's a huge elephant that needs to be eaten. And that's why it's so important to identify it. And you keep on re-identifying it. Because after you identify it the first time, you see that there's an end and a beginning. This problem isn't infinite. It isn't omnipotent. It has its capacity. It's huge. It's devastating. But it has a beginning and an end. Then the next step is to subdivide that gigantic piece into two medium-sized pieces and keep on doing that. You cannot do that when you're on the run. Because all you know is there's this omnipotent problem that I'm petrified of that's looking to swallow me up alive. So the first step we're talking about tonight is Bo El Paro. Face your fear. And remember, face your fear is never defined by go to your fear, it's come to your fear. Because the fear is within you, not within the gun. It's within you and your reaction to the gun. So it's Bo El Paro. Identify it. Identify it from beginning to end. Those of you who like reading books, Dale Carnegie has an amazing book on how to live a worry-free life. 
And over there he talks about these things. Accept the worst scenario. Once you can do that, work further. So of course when you read that you think, okay, and what's about if God forbid the worst scenario we're dealing with is a fatal illness? He actually has a case over there where someone was told he's going to die. The person accepted it, went on a cruise. Doctor said, you're never going to make it. And he read, you read over there the story. I'm not here to repeat to you his whole book. So face it. Face it regardless of how bad it is. Even if we're talking about death, face the fear. A and this is important, people. This is important. Let's put some stuff on the table. There are some people that have unbelievable financial fears. I just will not be able to make it. I'm just a matter of time. I'm going to be homeless. There are people here that face the, f the fear that I will never get married. How am I supposed to accept that? Face it. Face, face that scenario. There are people in the history of the Jewish people that never got married. Face it. You're afraid of it? Face it. Don't keep on doing the chas uh, tu 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 Skip the chas skip the tu 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 Face it. There is a possibility. <coughs> Deal with it. And the minute you face it, you will have overcome your greatest obstacle to finding your basherta. It's a fact. We face our fears. Step number two. Step number two is based on the law in Rambam. The Rambam talks about the laws of a Jewish soldier in the army. Those of you who are familiar with the laws, there is an absolute verse. This is biblical, not rabbinical, and even if it's rabbinical, it would be good enough. But I'm just telling you the facts of life. It's biblical. It's right there in the five books of Moses. You are not allowed to be afraid of going to war. If you're dressed in green, it is a prohibition to be afraid. And Maimonides has a question. Let's talk about the reality of this. You drafted this guy. It wasn't a voluntary sign-up. The guy is petrified. Not everyone is willing to face fear. What do you do? I drafted you. I told you you have no choice in the matter. And not only that, I put you into which part of the army, and that's where you're going to be, and finish. And now comes God and says, don't you dare get afraid. So again, parenthetically speaking, I want to share with you something that was really for me this is not what the Rambam says now. This is just parenthetically speaking. Something to me that really changed my outlook on fear. It's a saying. Brave men are not those who have no fear. They're, they are those that have fear and do it anyway. Very important. Most of us, when we pray to God about something that we're afraid of, what we're praying is that we should be brave. And what is our definition of brave-hearted? <laughs> that guy is afraid of nothing. That's not real. That is not real. The definition of brave is not that you're not afraid. It's that you are afraid, but you're going to do it anyway. So very many people have a great fear of investments, especially with what's been going on lately in the world of economy. The difference between one and the other is that one is paralyzed by the fear. The other is brave enough to have the fear and do it anyway. That's the difference between the brave and the non-brave. One allows the fear to create a paralysis 
And the other one says, yeah, I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. And obviously, I'm not talking over here, you know, jumping off the roof, guys. We're talking about logical, you know? <coughs> you don't invest all your eggs in the basket, put half your eggs, do research, have a backup plan, have a stopper if it drops lower than this, immediately sell for me. I mean, use your Yiddish Kepala, okay? Don't allow faith to make a fool out of you. People usually allow faith to make a fool out of them and then they complain to God. It doesn't say anyway in the Torah, thou shalt be a fool. It says thou shalt have faith. They're two different things. But be brave enough to do it anyway. Of course we're afraid. Of course we're shaking. And of course right after we signed, we asked someone, do you think I did the right thing? We're afraid. That's normal. That's human. It's okay. The difference is whether you're paralyzed by your fear or you know how to downsize and then take the step anyway. So that's number two. A, face your fear and identify it. Without all the afraid to say it, now tiftach peh, and all the other good Jewish superstitions that come along with it. That have good sources, by the way. Then we're talking about accept that the definition of brave, if you want to be brave, is not not to have fear. It's not to be paralyzed by your fear. Have your fear, react intellectually, and do it anyway. Now comes the Rambam. Because this is the most practical part when you're going to be hit by an anxiety attack. I mentioned to you the law of the Rambam. I mentioned to you that regardless if this person by nature is just not afraid of heights, not afraid of seeing blood, not afraid of anything, versus the other person is afraid of blood, Nevertheless, the Rambam equally says, God said to both of them, you're not allowed to be afraid. And then the Rambam questions this. How can it be? By the way, you should know that most of the times that there's a commandment on an emotion, one of our sages will question, how can you command an emotion? This has been asked about, love God, your God. There's a great sage called the Mazrija Magid who asked, how can you order me to love you? You can order me to listen to you. You can't order me to love you. I either do or don't love you, right? Half of the greatest movies is about one is in love with the other, but they can't force the other to be in love with them. And that's the beautiful conflict of half your romance movies. What's the reality? Can you command an emotion? Almost all the time that this question will be asked, the answer will always be the same. The action of the mitzvah is talking to the brain. the capacity of when it becomes a sin or not, or a mitzvah or not, is within the heart. I'm going to repeat this. The active directive of the mitzvah is always talking to your brain, not to your heart. So when the mitzvah says, thou shalt not be afraid to go to war, the action directive of that verse is talking to your brain. Control your thinking. However, if you did think, you should know that the line that defines sin from almost sin is the heart. Let's explain. The Rambam says that when the mitzvah in the Torah says to a soldier, thou is not allowed to be afraid of war. What the mitzvah is saying is that you are not allowed to sit and start thinking of different scenarios that could God forbid happen at war. 
Because God cannot tell you, I want your heart not to have fear. But God could tell you, protect your heart from experiencing fear. And how is that? Control your thoughts. God can't tell you, you must love me. He can't tell that to my heart. I got issues, resentment issues with God. And some are pretty right. What do you mean love you? So the mitzvah is telling you that you must control your thought patterns when you're thinking about God. You've got to control the way you think about God. He's not your buddy. He's God. And if you think about God in a certain pattern, that pattern is going to give birth to certain emotions. That's why any good therapist will always talk about a gratitude list. What's the gratitude list? The gratitude list is a thought pattern. I want you to think right now about five things that you're grateful to God for. You think about five things that you're grateful to God for, it will be impossible at that moment to hate God. It will be impossible at that moment not to feel some type of thankfulness, i.e. love for God. And that is part of the biggest struggles whenever you go to therapy for feelings. Because you want the therapist to deal with your feelings and all the therapist could do is deal with your thoughts. And that's what the Torah is talking about. Whenever the Torah is talking to you about a feeling, it is talking to you about your thoughts. The definition of the borderline. So let's say I'm, st I'm there in green, and I do start thinking a little bit about, you know, I may be blown out of this, you know. I just may be dead. And even worse, I can be captured alive. And I start entertaining these thoughts. And then I say, no, 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 stop. You can't think about this now. I have not, I have not committed the sin. If I didn't stop before I started trembling, then I committed the sin. So the emotion is actually a gauge of how far you let your thoughts go. The definition of a mitzvah or an avera is a marker on the gauge. But the action, the action is all in the brain. So to face your fear on this level of the Rambam is simply to control your thoughts. To grab a hold of that huge big steering wheel. To know when to stop yourself. I want to quote to you a piece of the previous Rebbe's diary about when he was in prison facing the death penalty. In the beginning of his diary, he writes how when he was brought there to the KGB headquarters, he writes how he started thinking about how his mother was crying, how his wife, how his daughters. He talks about a certain chassid who he saw through the window that when the chassid saw that he was in the black wagon, his face went white. Prefer is talking about his thoughts. And then he starts asking, what's going to be with my family? What's going to be with my chassidim? And all of a sudden, right there on the page, he says, but I cannot think about this now 
Now I must be strong to what lies ahead. That verse right there is the mitzvah that the Rambam's talking about. Any of you ever read um, Murray Tuesday? I think it's that book. What? Tuesdays with Murray. Tuesdays with Murray? You remember when the student asked him, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with knowing that you're dying? Remember what he answered? I give myself an allotted piece of time. And then I stop. I'll tell you an interesting story I heard from Rabbi Shapiro. There was a certain, a certain Rebbe who passed away. And he left instructions, not in Chabad. He left instructions that this young child is to be the next Rebbe. So the Chassidim came to the child and told the child, you're meant to be Rebbe. That's what your grandfather said. So he said, I'm willing to be Rebbe on one condition. I'm willing to be Rebbe if you allow me one hour a day that no one, not even my Gabbai, has a right to enter my room. He said, of course. And this child became Rebbe. And obviously the grandfather said that this child should be Rebbe because this child had a Rebbe soul. He was meant to be a Rebbe. And everything was perfect. He led the community as a child exactly the way his grandfather did. And his prayers actually brought blessings. One time there was an emergency, a life or death situation. The Gabbai didn't know what to do. It's that allotted hour where we promised the Rebbe we're not going into the room. But it's a life and death situation. The Gabe felt he had no choice. He's got to break his promise and he's got to walk into the Rebbe's room in that hour. So he has no choice. He opens up the door and to, to his total amazement slash horror, he sees the Rebbe acting like a full-blown kid, jumping on the table, running around. He's just shocked. And then he goes ahead and the Rebbe asked him, didn't we make a deal? He said, I'm sorry, Rebbe, this is a life and death situation. And then he asked the Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm your Gabbai. I know you. I know that you're real. What are you doing? I work with you. I know that you're real. You're not a child. What are you doing here? And the Rebbe told him like this, what don't you understand? The bottom line is I'm biologically a child. But when my grandfather placed this on my shoulders, I had to make a deal with myself. I'm going to squeeze my being a child into one hour, get it all out, and then be the Rebbe I need to be. The mind has the power to do that. By the way, not that I'm going to do any PR for this man, and I'm definitely not getting into politics, but there's one thing about Bill Clinton that has always amazed me his unbelievable power of compartmentation. He was just being completely attacked about what he did with his interns, left that room, walked into the next room, and was dealing with a war that was brewing. The power of that compartmentation that we're talking about from the story of the Hela Gatsadik, Lahavda we're talking about Tuesday with Murray, that power is within our reach. It is humanly possible to say that, listen, I'm giving myself 60 minutes on the pity party, and then I got to go deal with life. You can't do that. You can actually set a timer. And when the timer rings, 
you rip yourself away from the pleasure of sitting on the pity potty. Because as much as we complain about it, we keep on going back because it's enjoyable. For whatever reason, just the way human beings are. You force yourself away, and right now I have to think about two business deals that are laying on my table. I gotta think about a program that I gotta come up with. I gotta think about a lecture that I gotta do, whatever each one of us does. However, the secret is that most of us fail the challenge of our fear because we try to touch the emotion rather than realize, touch the thought pattern. I'm gonna finish up with the following. Again, I always think in pictures, so this is how I see this whole class. Emotions is a pot. It's the most powerful boiling pot of the human being. Any salesman will tell you, without emotion, the deal does not get closed. There's a reason why they always add on the fear factor. You know there's already a contract on this. You know that tomorrow I can't promise you this deal. There's always the reason why they're giving you that bubba mindset. And that is because human beings are not moved off their derriere into action unless there's an emotion there. Fear, love, read the book, Think to Good, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. He clearly writes, there isn't a single person that he's met in all his 10 years of interviewing successful people that didn't have either great love for a wife or, or fact, mistress. Emotions drive us, not intellect. There isn't a single deal that was closed intellectually. Somewhere there's got to be emotion. So the emotion is the biggest driving force of the human beings. We do nothing without emotions. However, emotions is a burning hot red pot. And when you try to touch the pot, you're going to get burnt. So what do you do? Tell me, my friend, you cook? Not a good question to ask a Jewish woman, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> right. How do you touch the pot? <laughs> Beautiful. Did you hear her answer? The only way to touch a pot is by the handle. So if emotions is the pot, thought pattern is the handle. And that's the way you face your fear. So guys, let's recap and close it. Number one, come to Pharaoh. A, you've got to face your fear. Your fear is not of that which is without you. The fear is from that which is within you. It's an experience within you. So you've got to come to Pharaoh. You've got to identify it. You've got to not be afraid of all the superstitions of saying it. You've got to actually articulate, well articulate your fear. I will one day be an old maid with no one to share my life with, with no kids. That's a horrible fear. I will one day be that person on the street begging for work. Just say it, articulate it, come to Pharaoh and define it. Number two, realize, brave has nothing what to do with the feelings in your heart. It has to do with the paralysis or not paralysis that happens because of what's in your heart. So the brave people swallow hard and walk forward. Those who are not brave just get stuck in paralysis. And then the third thing is, to change an emotion, you've got to change your thought pattern. Your thought pattern is what feeds emotions. Take away the thoughts that are feeding the fear, and the fear becomes smaller. Start putting your thoughts into the trust, which will help you be brave and step forward, even though 
you have physical fear and you will watch yourself become brave. And that's all for tonight, guys. Thank you very much.